Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on all the big issues in football. Joining me as ever is Duncan Castles. I'm Ian McGarry and as ever, Duncan, we like to bring our listeners the very latest. We can do this about Paul Pogba's future today. Uh, I have been told that Manchester United have been told directly that they should expect a bid from Real Madrid next week. Real currently uh, trying to get some of their bigger earners off of the books so that they can uh, afford Pogba's salary stroke transfer fee. Uh, we know that Zinedine Zidane is extremely keen on Pogba, uh, more so than he is on Neymar with Neymar's potential move to Madrid receding certainly slightly and looking more like Barcelona, then Pogba obviously has become a priority. Um, Interestingly, I'm told that uh, Real Madrid's lawyers have already prepared a contract for Pogba. And remember, these contracts are extremely complex because of what just not just what the player earns, but because of the implications of image rights, tax, and uh, likes of insurance, etc., etc. So, in order to speed that process up, Madrid's lawyers have prepared a contract with just the figures to fill in, which is a nice kind of image, I'm sure, for Paul Pogba and his agent, Mino Raiola. Um, and that the bid will go through next week, pending on the uh, transfers outgoing or loans indeed outgoing of the Santiago Bernabeu. Now, I'm told that Manchester United, when contacted about this by an intermediary, um, we're very firm in saying uh, thank you for the information, um, but he's not for sale. And that is definitely going to be their stance. But Duncan, I, I just wonder, um, Pogba has a record of being quite petulant. Um, we saw that last season when he was unhappy with Jose Mourinho, etc., etc. We know he wants to play at Real Madrid at some point in his career. And he also made that big statement even after the 4-1 against Chelsea last weekend when he said, in my future, who, who knows? Can you see Pogba trying to force his way of, of Manchester United should the club stick with their stance of he's not for sale? I think this is the, the nightmare scenario for Manchester United in many ways. Um, they have banked on retaining Pogba. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has talked to Pogba to try and convince him how important he is for his plans going forward, how important he is to the team, try to keep him on board, get the best out of him. Um, they have allowed two senior international midfielders to leave in the last two transfer windows. They haven't replaced. Uh, they flirted with Sean Longstaff at Newcastle United um, and then were scared off by Mike Ashley's realistically excessive asking price for a, for a player who's very little experience in the Premier League. Um, you know, they, they, they are playing at present with Scott McTominay and Andres Pereira, um, two uh, talented young players, but two players who are yet to... Um, prove that they can be reliable midfielders all the way through a Premier League season for a team that is, um, at least on paper, trying to challenge for the title. So they don't have depth there. If they lose Pogba, they've got serious problems. Uh, They're obviously clear that they they will not sell the player. Um, The issue then becomes how does Pogba respond if Madrid put that bid in place and pursue him aggressively in the last few weeks of their transfer window. And yes, obviously you look at the history of Paul Pogba um, and the history of his agent, Mino Raiola. 
in terms of their um, readiness to agitate for a move and readiness to offer the player around Europe when things aren't going well for them. And you would say that doesn't bode well um, in terms of the situation. I think um, this is obviously related to the Neymar situation. We told you that Madrid are serious about signing Neymar. They've been in advanced negotiations with Paris Saint-Germain to do that deal. It's driven by Florentino Perez. It's not Zinedine Zidane's preference. Um, they are very close to having a club-to-club -club agreement with Paris Saint-Germain for the player. The player, however, is still insisting he wants to go to Barcelona. Um, I think you might have seen some reporting today that he was ready to take a substantial pay cut um, to uh, make that move to Barcelona happen. That's something we reported on the podcast almost two months ago that Neymar had agreed with Barcelona that he would take a pay cut on his Paris Saint-Germain salary um, to enable them to get him back in the club inside the salary cap and so his wages weren't um, higher than um, Lionel Messi's and, and wouldn't cause a problem internally from that perspective. Um, Barcelona do not have that club-to-club -club agreement. We told you in the last podcast the details of their negotiations with Paris Saint-Germain in Paris, how they got to within 50 million euros of uh, the asking price, um, including players in that deal. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops over the next weeks. I don't see Madrid doing both deals. Um, and if Barcelona can't come to a final agreement, with Paris Saint-Germain for Neymar, then Madrid becomes the realistic out for, um, for Neymar to get away from Paris where the situation is getting harder and harder for him. Fans telling him where to go. Um, the club pretty much making it clear that the, they, they don't trust him anymore. Um, he's training by himself. He's been uh, in the Algarve this week, uh, attending a, 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 a concert from one of his Brazilian um, friends, um, he needs to get out somewhere and um, Barcelona have the, the strongest hand in that that's his choice of where to go, but this could shift to Madrid and then that I, will, I would expect to have a knock-on effect to Pogba. Uh, Manchester United I think will resist whatever happens. It would be a massive loss now given the transfer window for the Premier League has closed. Obviously, they couldn't replace him in any way, shape or form. And as you mentioned already, Duncan, it's not like they're overflowing with great midfielders at Manchester United right now either. So I suspect that United will resist any attempts. But what we know about Paul Pogba, I mean, Raiola, is that these things don't go away very easily. <clears throat> we could, ease, we could gen genuinely be seeing stories like this even after the Spanish transfer window closes. And if Pogba remains at Manchester United, we could be seeing speculation week in, week out about what's going to happen in January. Um, although transfers of that magnitude don't usually tend to happen in the mid-season window. But one like this, uh, should things not go well for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, or certainly as well as it did last Sunday against Chelsea, then Pogba, we know, will become uh, frustrated, agitated and will you know, look to see his future elsewhere. So it will be intriguing to see what that bid is. One thing I would say as well with regards to the mechanics of this is that Real Madrid are, as we know, a very proud club who uh, don't like to be seen to be undermined or defeated. And therefore, um, I, whereas you know, the Spanish newspaper marker tend to get briefings directly from the club, 
with regards to their business uh, and briefings from the club, which uh, they hope will then influence uh, some kind of issue or situation that they are on, ongoing that they want to um, gain a positive outcome from, I think they, this will be very tight. I think uh, when this bid goes in, as it's expected to, um, it will be very tight about how much it is and uh, what United's um, answer is as well. And I suspect there'll be a non-disclosure agreement uh, so that Manchester United are deterred uh, from briefing the media here that they've received a bid and that they've turned it down because obviously that would be in Manchester United's interest to, um, if you like, say we are bigger than Real Madrid because we have told them that Pog was not for sale. So, it, as I said, that will be part of the intrigue in the next 10, 12 days or so with regards to what happens. Um, but away from Pogba, Duncan, you have some information on another Manchester United player who seems to be um, edging ever closer to an exit from Old Trafford. Yeah, this is uh, Marcus Rojo, who United have been trying to move out for some time. Um, they have a very optimistic um, valuation of £25 million for the transfer fee for a player who's um, barely played in the last year um, and is one of seven centre-backs, senior centre-backs on their books at present, so is um, very much obviously surplus to requirements. We told you um, on deadline day that Everton uh, tried to do a deal for Rojo uh, for the second summer running, actually, a player that they, um, that they tried to sign last summer as well. Everton wanted to make that a loan deal. Manchester United refused. The deal fell through. Um, Rojo wasn't happy with that. Marco Silva also unhappy because he was left short of a centre-back in his squad. I can tell you Rojo's agent is currently in Istanbul uh, trying to negotiate a deal with Fenerbahce who want to take Rojo on loan for the coming season. Once again, Manchester United are trying to make that a full transfer rather than a loan. Um, and there is uh, friction uh, between the, the three parties, I guess, over uh, the completion of that. Fenerbahce, I don't think, are in any place to do certainly a £25 million transfer. They know the circumstances of the player. They know he wants to come. I'm told that if it doesn't go through, um, Rojo will go to war. Um, were the words that were used with me, were used to me um, over uh, his situation at United to try and force a move before um, the European transfer window closes. So um, more uh, decisions to be taken by United. Um, interesting to see at, at what point Edward was prepared to compromise on transfer fee or whether he will try and insist to the end that if his fee is not met, the player doesn't get to leave the club. And that, let's face it, has been his uh, track record on these type of players um, for several seasons now. He's been very insistent in holding to evaluation. When the valuations aren't met, the players are retained for another season. Uh, Matteo Darmian being a, a classic example there and uh, generally don't get a lot of playing time. They're left uh, as a problem for the manager because the, the squad is big and you've got a dissatisfied um, individual in the squad. And with Rojo, you're talking about a player who's on a wage of £8 million a year. So it's a substantial financial commitment just to hold him in reserve for Manchester United. Um, so let's see what the decision's going to be this time and whether they'll compromise to get a bit of money in um, and uh, and forsake the what looks like a dream um, uh, figure in terms of their their own valuation of the player. 
Daisy Duncan, to me, that just looks like both a bad decision <clears throat> on the football side, not playing, clearly not fancied by the manager, who's been there for, you know, by quite some time now. So he's a time to assess role. And is, is he, you know, in a match day 18? Well, very limited he is. Uh, is he a starter? No, definitely not. And, but also a bad business decision. As you say, he's on £8 million a year. Now, send him on loan to Fenerbahce, get him off your salary for a season, and then see what happens next season, next transfer window, January or next summer. It just seems really strange that United would keep a player who is not going to play a major part in their campaign this season and who's on such a substantial amount of money. And also, Rojo's quite a strong character. You know, we talk a lot about the <clears throat> mood in dressing rooms and nothing stinks a dressing room out like a player who's unhappy, angry, uh, frustrated at his treatment by the club. He's been kept against his will, etc., etc., and he wants to get out there and play. So very, very odd, I think, on both counts. I think, yeah, if you talk to managers, one of the things they will always tell you is that it, one of the hardest jobs of managing is when you have players that you don't want to use or can't use when you've got too many players in the squad. Um, and he's still in and around the training ground. Um, they'd much rather have those players shifted out. And most clubs will take that decision. If they know a player's unlikely to get game time um, and is on a substantial, particularly if he's on a substantial wage for a season, they'll put the player on loan, uh, get the wages covered, hopefully, and I think in these circumstances they would be able to get the wages covered, certainly would have been able to do that at Everton, um, usually get a loan fee on top, so um, you take some money for, for the, uh, the year of contract, and if the player does well, he's on the market, he's, uh, he's increasing his value, you, he's uh, appealing to other potential suitors, maybe the club um, he's on loan at will be forced into buying him because he does such a good job. But alternatively, other teams say, ah, look, here's this guy um, playing for uh, a major club in a major country um, and doing well, then he's an option for us to buy. Now, we, we, we can see that he's actually um, uh, hasn't lost his ability uh, from sitting in the reserves and, and being um, unused for, for a period of time. So you've got that chance of, uh, of increasing the market value by, by placing a player on loan. And that's I think that's generally why other clubs do it and why Manchester United policy has been so strange. And I, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but there's been some uh, interesting studies of the turnover of squads of the top clubs in the, in the Premier League. And um, if you look at Manchester City and Liverpool, easily the two strongest squads in the Premier League at present, they have virtually turned over completely. Um, since Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola have been in charge, whereas Manchester United has, has still has a large number of players who were there um, at the same time as um, Jurgen Klopp arrived at Liverpool. Um, they really haven't um, been good at moving players out, and, and that's half the job in the transfer market is moving players out. Uh, it's not, and it, when you insist on only moving a player when he meets when the, the buying club meets your valuation, it becomes hard to move players out. It's just simple mathematics. Well, from one disgruntled player at Manchester United to another at Tottenham Hotspur, because with the uh, transfer market still being uh, open, of course, all around Europe and indeed other places in the world, Christian Eriksen continues to attract attention. However, 
it may come to a head with regards to his situation at Tottenham uh, on this weekend when they are away to Manchester City because Ericsson's told teammates and people close to him that he was very unhappy to be on the bench uh, in last weekend's win and come on after 66 minutes for Harry Winks and that if he's not in the starting lineup for the game at the Etihad, then his potential move and obviously his sense of needing a new challenge and not being feeling wanted will escalate uh, and therefore with time ticking down on the transfer window um, he will see himself as being somewhere else and his agents and representatives will sure um, do the same thing in informing Daniel Levy that that's what they, uh, they want and that's what their player wants because clearly he is not in the plans of Mirzu Pochettino at this moment in time. Now, whether he can turn that round or whether um, Pochettino changes minds, I guess, uh, will come down to uh, when this window closes and whether or not, of course, he's still there. But we have um, told you on the podcast about interest from Bayern Munich uh, uh, before, and uh, my understanding is that in the last few days, Bayern Munich have contacted Ericsson's representatives to reiterate their interest in bringing him in as either an 8 or a 10, so and a creative role and give them creative options in a team which they are rebuilding at uh, some ex- very expensive uh, cost with regards to signings in the last f- uh, three, four months. And um, Ericsson is tempted, obviously, by a move to the German champions. I think his preference would be to go to Real Madrid. But, of course, that would depend on Paul Pogba le- leaving Manchester United or staying at Manchester United because Madrid would not sign, obviously, two creative midfielders at that level of finance. This is a difficult one for for managers, Duncan. You just you were just explaining to us about you know how difficult it's to manage a player who has feels let down and doesn't want to be there. And Ericsson, you know, has always come across as quite a you know laid back kind of you know uh, North European Danish. Well, you know, it's okay I, as long as I'm playing, I'm happy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's the exact thing which has been taken away from him is the playing time so far. Now it's only one game, but it is significant given that he was probably last season, um, and probably for two seasons now, won the first names on that Spurs team sheet. Um, what would you say is a probable outcome? I know it's impossible to predict it right now, but as you said, keeping an unhappy player is sometimes detrimental regardless. Well, there has been problems between Pochettino and Ericsson through pre-season, I'm told, by uh, people close to him. Um, he clearly wants to leave. He stated that. Uh, the, the problem, of course, is getting the offer on the table that Daniel Levy is ready to accept. So Levy was allowing Manchester United to talk with Ericsson just before the end of the transfer window, but he was asking £80 million for the player, and Manchester United were not prepared to go there. Um, I'd be surprised if either Bayern or Real Madrid or anyone else uh, on the continent would be prepared to meet an £80 million asking price. Therefore, the question is what... I think this one comes down to Daniel Levy more than anything else. And so what level Levy is prepared to sell the player if a substantial bid comes in? And at what level he says, well, that's not high enough, I will keep him um, against his will and, uh, and use him this season because I know the manager wants to retain him because the manager wanted to um, top reinforcements in midfield in addition to the number 10 Giovanni Lo Celso that he got. Um, he only got one of those reinforcements so he would like Ericsson to continue for the season. 
I think this is always hard to judge because you, you're you're um, you're basically calculating it in terms of what you know of the character of the player and how how he will be handled by a particular manager. But I think Eriksson's the kind of guy that would knuckle down and make the best of it if he was forced to stay. Um, I you know he's not a Paul Pogba, um, he's not a Mauro Icardi. He's not. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't come across as being a you know a born troublemaker, um, and obviously he has the going into that final year of contract. You have the the situation where he doesn't have any guarantee for the next year, and um, the the value of his next contract can be increased by a, a year of good performances for Tottenham. So I would expect it to go that way, um, and I think again I think it's Daniel Levy's the key figure here. Um, Daniel Levy, how much of an offer comes in from one of the, the um, overseas clubs and whether that's acceptable to him. If it is, I think Ericsson will go and then Levy will have a problem with Pochettino. Um, if it isn't, I think Ericsson will stay and um, Pochettino will probably get a reasonable season out of him and he'll leave in a free transfer in a year's time. That's the uh, £18 million question, I guess, Duncan, because Spurs have invited Ericsson's representatives uh, for more talks on a new contract, <clears throat> which of course would make him better paid. It would give him security. Um, and obviously any kind of, let's just say, differences or uh, uncertainty between him and the manager would quickly be healed because he's committed his future to the club. However, you do have this situation that you mentioned where he has one year left in his contract. So he's worth let's just say, between 60 and 80 million euros to Tottenham for the next 10 or 12 days. But after that, either he goes in January for half that price or he runs his contract down and goes for free next summer. Now, what's definitely the case is that Tottenham's offer of a new contract in terms of financial um, reward is going to be less than he could expect to earn at one of Europe's top-tier elite clubs. So he would be the next Aaron Ramsey in terms of being available to any top European club and taking not just a very, very uh, substantial upgrade in his pay for not costing a transfer fee, but also um, getting something which has gone out of fashion these days, which is the signing on fee, a golden hello, as they're called as well. So he's some up front, which represents the fact that he is on a a free transfer, therefore not costing the amount of money which has been quoted by Daniel Levy. So it will be, um, as I said, interesting that the invitation to go to talks has so far not been taken up. Interesting that I think, as I'm told, his representatives will not undertake that invitation unless Spurs um, offer a more credible upgrade in his contract than the one that they've last offered in May of this year. Um, and I think if you are playing the negotiating game, then probably, you know, if he's, if he's forced to stay, as we think he might be, then that's the time to then perhaps have that contract negotiation talk. But of course, at which point, Ericsson becomes £120, £130 million pounds, uh, sale next summer for Tottenham if he's decided he still wants to leave. So several options open. Right now, the player's the one in control of this in terms of uh, what his decision is going to be. But as we know, Daniel Levy is a very, very, very tough negotiator. So whoever 
wants to make a bid for Christian Eriksen will have to brace themselves for a long and difficult uh, period of <clears throat> arguing to and fro with regards to the value. And that's what basically it comes down to. Now, I'm pretty sure if a club stopped up the £80 million asking price, then Levy would sell on the basis that, well, I'm sorry, Maurizio, but this is a, a player who says he wants to be somewhere else. This is a player who's got one year left in his contract. And as a club, we can't afford to lose that asset for free. Therefore, club comes up with a figure, player wants to leave, then that's what happens. Yeah, there's two other elements to this. Ericsson will be free to sign a pre-contract um, with one of those overseas clubs in four and a half months. So in January, he can do that. Same way Ander Herrera um, exercised that right, albeit he did it later in the last but, season. What Aaron Ramsey did as well, remember? He, he signed yeah. that contract with Juventus. Yeah, and, and then there's one other element, which is if he gets into negotiations for a new contract with Tottenham uh, to tie him down, uh, at least for this season, and to uh, ensure that they, are, they retain transfer value on him, he would be in a position to negotiate a release clause into that contract. So to say, for example, that um, if someone pays £80 million pounds or £100 million pounds at any point during that contract or in a defined period, um, which is something that David De Gea did when he signed his last contract with Manchester United, he would be allowed to leave um, to that suitor if he chose to take up their offer um, for a defined price. So that there, you know, there, once you get a player into this situation only having one year left, a lot of things come into play in the negotiations, um, which often aren't there in normal circumstances. That one will run for the next 12 days or so, 14 days. Um, so 12, I think September 2nd is when the uh, window closes in Europe. So uh, we will be reporting on that next week for you. Something we reported on this week uh, already has uh, caused quite a stir, it's fair to say. And that is the um, FIFA's uh, adjudication on Manchester City. Uh, fining them 375,000 Swiss francs for um, transgressions of signing underage, underage players under the age of 18 uh, from other countries. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say that we focused mainly, well, we did focus mainly on the adjudication against City on Wednesday. But because so many of you have been uh, debating with us, and you know we love to um, get your views uh, on the transfer window. Um, keep them as polite as you can, please, and you're always much more likely to get a response. Um, but we're going to look at, in relative terms at other clubs who have had the same uh, judgment against them so that we can weigh up exactly where City's punishment uh, lies uh, in regard to other clubs who have also been punished. And, of course, a lot of you have been saying, well, how can Chelsea get a two-window ban for the same um, illegality and City got off with a fine? But, Duncan... I think it's important that we also um, look at the fact that clubs like Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid have also had transfer bans for the same transgression. Yeah, 2014, Barcelona um, got a two-window transfer ban. Uh, 2016, Real Madrid had a two-window ban that they got reduced to one window um, after appealing it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And Atletico Madrid... Uh, in 2017 had a, a two-window transfer ban which they've served and Chelsea obviously have been handed down a two-window transfer ban which they have appealed against um, and a final decision hasn't been taken. That, that's not gone through a CAS tribunal as yet. Um, 
These are based on transgressions of the regula FIFA's regulations on the status of tra and transfer of players. And those regulations were introduced a long time ago, it was 2001, they first came into effect. There are two parts of one article, Article 19, which is the protection of minors, on which those clubs have been sanctioned with transfer bans. Um, the first article is very straightforward. It's international transfers of players are only permitted if the player is over the age of 18. And then, so that's 19.1. 19.3, um, the conditions of this article shall also apply to any player who has never previously been registered with a club, is not a national of the country in which he wishes to be registered for the first time, and has not lived continuously for at least the last five years in said country. So that's basically saying um, it's not just when you transfer a player from overseas who's under the age of 18, it's when you register a player for the first time who's never been registered with another club from overseas. And they, those two, two um, parts of Article 19 are the ones that have resulted in transfer window bans for Atletico, Barca, Real Madrid and Chelsea. They're also um, the elements that Manchester City were found to have breached by FIFA. Um, there are different number of players were investigated in these cases, but what you need to look at is the number of charges that were upheld by FIFA um, after appeal. So FIFA charged the clubs and then the clubs are allowed to appeal to FIFA. FIFA appeal committee looks at it, up, upholds a certain number of charges in each case. The clubs are then allowed to go to CAS, who in, in every case before have knocked down the number of charges and then decided on a final punishment. Atletico's was the heaviest one. They were um, found guilty after appeal to FIFA of 65 separate charges of the of um, of breaking 19.1 or 19.3, and then 35 additional procedural charges, which are are less important and don't haven't carried transfer window bans. Um, in Barcelona's case, it was 10 and 11 procedural. In Real Madrid's case, it was eight and four procedural. Um, CAS, after the Court of Arbitration for Sport, after they looked at those individual cases, they reduced Atletico's to 26 substantive cases, seven substantive cases in the, in, the, in the case of Barcelona, and two, so two individual players in the case of Real Madrid. Um, all of the bans were upheld apart from Real Madrid's, which was reduced to a one um, window ban on the basis that it was they, they had only had two violations for two players. Interestingly, that when CAS um, announced their verdict, they said although they were re reducing the ban from uh, one window to two windows because the violations were, were only for two players rather than eight, they said any lesser sanction for Real Madrid's violations of the regulations would be inappropriate. Uh, the sole arbitrator recognises the importance of the protection of minors in football and that by violating the rules, Real Madrid went against that fundamental interest. So Cass were basically saying that even just two transgressions of the rule for recruiting minors merited a one-window transfer ban. So that, that's the precedent there. Um, I've been doing some investigation into exactly how many charges were um, placed against Manchester City because there's been a kind of um, 
think a misunderstanding um, rather than a misreporting, but there's been a suggestion that it was only two charges that Manchester City were found guilty of. My understanding was that they were the FIFA investigation involved 20 players, that there were 28 cases and charges raised against Manchester City, that the FIFA investigator recommended a transfer ban, um, that one of the players involved played 22 games um, while unregistered, so not just a, a couple of trial matches as, as had been the case for some of the other players and has been reported more generally. Then Manchester City, as we know, um, accepted that they'd broken the rules and asked um, that they be punished with a fine rather than a transfer window ban, which FIFA accepted. Manchester City, I'm told, accepted 15 breaches of articles 19.1 and 19.3 and three other procedural breaches. Now, in addition to this, there's on the record evidence from two of the African players, um, George Davis and Dominic Oduro, who gave an interview in Denmark last year when they went and they said that they signed for, both signed for and played for City under the age of 18. So there's a lot of cases there. Um, in Chelsea's uh, instance, the information I have is that they were investigated for 92 breaches and uh, FIFA's statement is that they have been uh, punished for transgressions in the case of 29 players. But, so obviously Atletico are the, the ones who've been involved with the most um, transgressions here and Atletico's case is particularly interesting because they, they actually used an amateur club as a way of trying to bypass the rules. So uh, when they had a foreign player they were interested in, they would place him with an amateur club that was very closely uh, related to Atletico but not actually owned by Atletico and, uh, and train the player there until he got to the age of 18 and then they'd promote him into Atletico's squad if they felt he was good enough. And they argued that that wasn't a transgression because the amateur club wasn't their own and uh, Cass basically said, no, um, that is illegal, that's uh, bypassing the rules, so you do get your ban. Um, Chelsea involved in more cases just than Manchester City, but as I say, in Real Madrid and Barcelona's case, what they were actually found guilty of, um, seven and two charges, substantive charges by Cass, is less than the number of substantive charges accepted by City um, in their plea bargain that allowed them to get away without a ban. So the rules um, have changed, not, the, not the, the rules on players, but the disciplinary code of FIFA has changed to allow um, clubs and individuals who are accused of breaking the rules to petition FIFA and say, we accept we broke the rules and this is the punishment uh, we think you should apply to us. And uh, it seems that's what Manchester City have used to get what, um, as I say, a lot of people in football think is a, a lenient punishment relative to what other major clubs have received for doing similar things in recent years. So that gives us a great amount of context, Duncan, and, and certainly the two issues there which I think are you know, most telling are the precedent set by the ban of Madrid for one window, having committed the same amount of uh, are found guilty of committing the same amount of charges as Manchester City. And second, as you said, the change in FIFA legislature with regards to you're allowed to uh, 
do a plea bargain effectively. So FIFA really are the ones to blame on this. Um, I mean, Manchester City are guilty of obviously breaching rules, but in terms of the punishment itself, FIFA, as you said, the FIFA investigator recommended a transfer ban, um, but FIFA decided not to. Um, I'm intrigued by this notion that you can suggest your own punishments, like you know me getting a ticket for parking on a double yellow line, and then going to the parking attendant and saying, you don't want to give me that 60 quid fine, mate. Well, I'll just give you 30 quid for it. I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is going to be to that. Um, so why are FIFA behaving in this way? That's, that's a big question. Um, and there's all, all kinds of uh, you know, theories about it. We are in a period in which the governance of um, international club football is being contested by FIFA and UEFA. Um, we've talked in the podcast before about the kind of inevitable path towards a European Super League um, and the way in which UEFA has kind of bent towards the will of the strongest clubs in Europe in order that they do not lose governments of the, the Golden Goose, which is the Champions League. Um, that hasn't been resolved and FIFA are at the very least actively working to increase their access to um, the cash pot that is um, club football in terms of expanding the Club World Cup. Um, so even if they never get involved in a, in a European uh, Champions League or Super League, um, they are trying to, to get clubs like Manchester City, Barcelona, Madrid, Bayern Munich, the, the, the big um, financial powerhouses of European football to buy into their Club World Cup concept. So, you know, you could have a hypothesis that it suits um, FIFA to keep uh, these clubs on side. There have also been substantial changes within FIFA, which we all know about um, for, for several years. And it may just be that the, the change in, in the dis disciplinary code was something that Gianni Infantino wanted because he felt it would uh, lead to less conflict with clubs. Because these, these cases are difficult for FIFA. They don't really have a strong investigatory body. They, uh, they generally rely on evidence being brought to them by whistleblowers or the media. Um, it's not like uh, UEFA's financial fair play investigators where, they, where they're, they're more directly involved in checking on the clubs and checking on accounts each year and, and searching for transgressions, although that isn't necessarily sufficient to achieve that. What's clear, though, is um, there, are, there are people worried that FIFA have basically um, undermined their own long-standing rules on the transfer of players. and. On, in particular on the transfer of minors. And these rules were brought in to stop the trafficking of, of uh, underage players and the pra practices such as uh, bringing job lots of, of African players to, to clubs in France um, on the promise that they would, uh, they would have a career in European football, um, putting them, trialling them at clubs, deciding whether you liked them or not. If you didn't like them, just leaving there to, to look after them. So that there was very good reasons for these rules coming in. And, and people are saying that if you turn it into a situation where what was the threat of a very substantial punishment that had serious consequences for your first team squad uh, in terms of not being able to buy players for one or two windows. Um, and we've seen the way that clubs have responded to that. Um, and it does cause 
proper difficulties. If you exchange that for what is a financial irrelevant to clubs of these of, of this nature, then it's pretty clear that the rational strategy on the part of the clubs who have for a long have, have been proven to be trying to find ways around these regulations. The reason that Barcelona, Madrid, Atletico, Chelsea, Manchester City now have all been caught is they need they want to get access to these young players. That's it's it's of a great competitive advantage to do that. So they've looked at the regulations and tried to work out ways around them. If you switch that in a way that you can essentially say it doesn't matter if you break the regulations, if you tell us that you've broken the regulations uh, and you pay us a few hundred thousand Swiss francs, um, we'll, we'll just let you carry on, or we'll just uh, we'll just ignore that. Then obviously the clubs are going to do that because a few hundred thousand Swiss francs is nothing in the broader context of the amount of money they are prepared to spend on on just one um, talented footballer. Never mind um, the sort of cohorts of talented footballers that we're talking about in these cases. One of the most troubling aspects of this whole issue, Duncan, is we seem to lose sight of what the core um, issue is here because we're talking about elite clubs, multi-million pound football clubs and organisations um, and all the cash and the um, the whole image, etc., etc., that goes with that. Um, we're talking about the, an infringement of the rights of minors here. That's what we're talking about. And it seems to me it's, it's kind of easy to lose sight, to almost whitewash what the actual transgression is. And with in the context of what's been happening uh, in clubs, club football with regards to um, uh, historic investigations into how minors have, have been treated in football clubs in England, you know, you think to yourself, are we missing something here? Are we missing the seriousness of what's going on? Because clearly, if you are involved in illegally recruiting a minor, and then, of course, promising all sorts of things, fame, riches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the case of many of these players, they get dumped and it never happens. What's the impact on them? Not just when it happens, but for the rest of their lives. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of concerned that you know they're not FIFA are not treating this seriously enough. Yes, I, I think that's the ramifications down the system. If if you if you undermine that basic rule that's been brought in to protect minors and has been relatively effective, then you allow clubs with less resources um, to engage in these practices and you'll probably end up with more um, minors being exploited and, and kids being asked to switch countries uh, at a young age with no um, guarantee of, um, of a career or education protection going forward. That, that's why these rules were brought in. And, and as I say, you know, you look at that cast verdict, um, it's very clear. Uh, two, it was the, the arbitrator only found Madrid guilty of two breaches, two players, but he felt that the minimum uh, punishment in those circumstances should be a one transfer window ban because of the seriousness of, um, of the rules in question. Um, and, you know, you look at the defence that Manchester City presented here, um, that they didn't understand the rules properly. These rules aren't complex. You can go on um, Google and look at the FIFA um, player rules. They're only a few paragraphs. It's not, it's not um, 
minutiae and detailed legal uh, ease, it's pretty straightforward. You don't sign players under a certain age unless there are very specific conditions um, which, which they give that allow you to do that. Um, to, so for a club of Manchester City status, which is so well run in almost every regard, I mean, uh, the, the key factor in their success on top of the funding they've been given um, by Abu Dhabi is Abu Dhabi has organised that club in a way that they have hired the best of the best and given them the authority to work as their expertise requires um, to achieve success on the field and to build a football club that is one of the most powerful in world football. They're not stupid people. Um, so, so that it, to argue that this group of administrators didn't understand the FIFA rules um, and just did this by accident is, you know, it's beyond belief. Beyond credible, isn't it? It's beyond credible. It is beyond credible, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a very serious issue, as I said. I think one that uh, perhaps has to be looked at again by FIFA um, because at the core is the uh, welfare of people. And in that, not just that, minors as well. So um, let's see how that develops, because I suspect that there will be, in light of these kind of cases, pressure groups um, who will be addressing that with FIFA in the future with regards to how uh, not only they govern um, over this, but also how the punishments that they meet out. It's Friday's podcast, everyone, which means quick fire round and in honour of the fact Premier League football is back. We have one game in. Um, Duncan and I are going to give you our predictions for our top four at the end of the season. bit early, of course, given that we can't quite see enough of new players and, and how clubs are playing. But, you know, sometimes you've just got to put our necks on the line and tell it how it is. So we're going to do that. We invite you to send us your top fours as well. Uh, I'll be very interested to see where you predict your club's going to be, if it's going to be um, top four or it's going to be somewhere below that. And, uh, you know, if we get some uh, interesting ones, we might even talk about them on Monday's pod. So, Duncan, I'll start with you. Uh, who will be champions of the Premier League ne- come May next year? Well, I think there's only two candidates, um, Manchester City and Liverpool. Um we talked about how Manchester City have added to their squad. Um, they've spent basically as much as any of their top six rivals in, in putting new players into positions that they already had filled. So they're adding additional options and top quality options and in positions that were already strong. Uh, they've got a, an immense depth there. Uh, I think there are only really um, two handicaps to them. One is that they've won the title two years running. So you have that um, the difficulty of doing three in a row is, is not to be underestimated from a psychological point of view. But I think that's something that Pep Guardiola is very, very focused on and aware of and targeting to do right. And he has, of course, done it um, in, other, in Germany uh, in, in his last job. I think the other one is Leroy Zani. I think that injury is, is a, a very significant one. Um, for reasons I've explained before, and that he adds something to their attack that no one else gives them in terms of a pace to get past opponents in tight spaces and create chances, and he, and he won them a lot of points last season. And I don't think he's going to win them many points this season because um, even when he comes back from that ACL injury, he'll have a, a period of recovery before he's 
uh, hopefully back to the same level as he was uh, before. And there's also the element of how he responds to having been played in that game when when uh, his trans potential transfer to Bayern was very open, um, suggestions that he didn't want to be playing that match, etc. But they're, they're the only two handicaps. Liverpool haven't added to their squad. That can help because you have continuity. Um, but as I said, through, the se through last season, Liverpool were probably eight to nine points better off in the table than they should have been realistically in terms of breaks they got from refereeing decisions and um, bizarre moments from goalkeepers in certain games. I don't think they've got enough um, to fully close that gap, even if Manchester City come back towards them slightly. Um, I'd be surprised if they're as lucky in avoiding injury to key players as they were last season. Um, and they've had several other key players, um, as is well documented, having to play Copa America, African Nations Cup, and um, not having much rest after very, very demanding seasons. So you would expect that to catch up with them eventually. So I, I think I'm going to go f for the safe uh, bookies bet here and, and call Manchester City for three titles in a row. Well, Duncan, I'm pleased because you illustrated exactly why the quickfire round is legendary there, because obviously it's not so quick. So um, I'm going to try and be a little bit quicker. Uh, I agree with you, but Manchester City, I think they have uh, augmented what was an incredibly strong squad. I don't see how anyone can beat them to the title. Uh, also, um, I have to say that uh, my son bumped into João Cancelo shopping in Manchester yesterday and told me he was a very cool, nice chap who predicted more success for City this season. Uh, and my response was, what the hell were you doing in a shop where 150 grand a week football was shopping? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait and see exactly what it was he bought. Anyway, um, so yes, my choice is City. Uh, Liverpool, I agree with you. Uh, so I'm going to go 1-2 with you as well. Liverpool, I think, will have a very good season. I don't think they'll be as close to City and lose by one point. But I see them as being that sort of maybe eight to ten points ahead of, of who's going to be third. Um, they've got so much firepower. I think they've also got players to, uh, who can become better this season. Um, slightly concerned for them with, with Alisson's injury um, because obviously he was a huge part uh, in the the, uh, the campaign last season that, that got them so close. So if that injury proves to be slightly worse than uh, has been said, I mean, it's been very vague, hasn't it? A few weeks. So uh, no Liverpool being very precise about that. Um, probably because they can't be uh, right now in, um, in terms of uh, the scans. So, yes, City first, Liverpool second. Uh, probably more interesting, Duncan, who do you think will be third? Well, I just say that that few weeks from Liverpool is very typical. I think they probably could be more precise, um, but we've heard that before from Liverpool. It's only going to be a few weeks and it turns into a lot of weeks. Um, they, they, I'm sure they have a good estimate themselves. They're just not making it public, but they've got they've, they have signed a very good backup there, in Adrian. Not not quite the same as Arsenal, but um, I, I certainly expect them to be um, substantially ahead of Tottenham, particularly as it looks like they're going to dump the domestic cups again to focus on Champions League and um, Premier League. Um, and yeah, I think third place goes to Tottenham. I think they're um, they're substantially uh, better than everyone else um, in the remainder of the top six last season. Uh, they've added quality to their squad. Um, there are still some weaknesses, and fullback is a, a, a questionable area for them. But um, 
for me, they will be a better team than Arsenal and Chelsea. I don't see Manchester United getting that high for sure. Um, they do not have the handicap of playing Thursday nights, which Arsenal have. Um, and I think, I think that's the real call. It's Arsenal or Chelsea for fourth place. Um, and I, I, I find that one harder. Um, and I think that the handicap of playing Europa League um, will damage Arsenal. Um, they don't have a very good defence, but then neither do uh, Chelsea. I think I'm just going to tip Arsenal ahead of Chelsea, just. So you've done two again there? Yeah. <laughs> for those of you... Quick round for you. Oh, no, you. Yeah, you've made it more quick. I'm going to go... So for, for those of you who are going to be shocked to hear that I'm going for Spurs and third as well, I assure you, Duncan and I did not rehearse this nor tell each other our choices before we did started the pod. Spurs, I agree with you, Duncan. I think they've also had a very good window. They've made good additions, quality additions. Um, I think they will move the ball more quickly, not just back to middle, but crucially middle to final third so therefore um, even though they were very good on the break last season uh, I think they'll be actually better because they won't, they'll have more players uh, in support for those second balls or indeed the second or third phase of play taking place in the final third so therefore I think that we can probably anticipate more goals from Spurs next season than last uh, and that will get them up to third place. I am going to um, just throwing a little bit of a, a different one, though, for fourth. I'm going to go for Chelsea. Um, I think Chelsea uh, under Lampard, there's no expectation of them uh, in terms of where they finish um, in the Premier League. Uh, obviously, they've got to play Champions League football as well. But I think that that's a team that will grow in confidence. Um, a lot of people say it was a mistake to sell David Luiz on the final day of the window. I don't believe that. I think Luiz is a big character in that dressing room who, if he wasn't playing, which, which he wouldn't have been under Lampard because he doesn't fancy him, uh, would have been a bad influence in the dressing room. Therefore, the decision was made very, very coldly to get rid. Um, and, of course, conversely, I think he will be exactly what people believe, including a lot of people at Chelsea, and that is that he is a um, gifted footballer, but unfortunately he's very unpredictable, both defending and in possession of the ball. Um, and he makes mistakes and he, he causes um, trip trouble and uh, difficulties for his defensive teammates and for the team. Um, therefore, I think that's not making Arsenal stronger. I think it's gonna it's a question mark. Um, and I think that's why, why Arsenal will finish outside the top four. So there you go, guys. Duncan has gone for City, Liverpool, Spurs and Arsenal. And I've gone City, Liverpool, Spurs and Chelsea. As I said, please send us your predictions. We will review them, obviously, at the end of the season. Maybe we'll even have a donkey award for who got it right and who got it wrong. Who knows? Uh, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Uh, if you want to give us something back, then please go to iTunes, give us a five-star review. Uh, that would be sensational. As you know, we like to continue the debate with you. And indeed, if you've got questions for us, please uh, tweet us at our at transfer podcast handle or tweet Duncan and I individually. Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Uh, everyone have a very good weekend of football and we will see you through the window on Monday. Thanks for listening. Hey.